Our study this morning, if you have your Bibles with you, um, we're in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. The title of our study this morning is Thirst is a Powerful Motivator. So in this section of scripture, there's a transaction taking place. It's between father and son. Jesus is on the cross. Darkness covered the land for three hours, from noon till 3 p.m. So there's no sun. It's very dark. You can't see. Perhaps the veil pulled down a little bit. And don't miss this. Darkness covered the land from noon till 3 o'clock. When he gave up the spirit at 3 o'clock, that's the time where they gave the temple sacrifices, 3 p.m. It, it is no accident the Lamb of God gave up his spirit at 3 o'clock. It was an exchange for the sins of the world. Quite frankly, beyond our comprehension. And if you're walking in sin, you're, you're walking in darkness. And the only way we can pierce that darkness is because Jesus died on the cross. And the only thing we can do is believe in him as our Lord and Savior. And they took his clothes, and they cast lots. The, the Roman soldiers didn't know it, but they were fulfilling scripture written over 600 years before. It's Psalm 22, verse 16 through 18. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. By the way, there's over 219 Old Testament scripture references in the New Testament. 116 of those are in Psalms. In Hebrews, it's the book of praises, Psalms. And at this time, there are three Marys at the foot of the cross. Why is that important? Well, a number of reasons. First of all, if you're going to make this up, if you're writing a story and you're John, you're not going to write down, well, okay, there's going to be three women. I'm going to name one Mary, and I'll name the other one Mary. They're, they're Marys. You're not going to do that. But you've got Mary, his mother. You've got Mary Magdalene. You've got Mary, wife of Clopas. The actual name in Hebrew is Miriam. Uh, the, in, in Greek, the, the Greek transliteration is uh, Maria or Mary. It means beloved. It means star of the sea. It gets confusing. There are so many Marys in the New Testament. I count eight. There's 51 references to 51 scripture references to Mary in the New Testament. What makes it even more difficult is that they don't have last names. None of them do. So that's why it's it's Mary of Magdala. That's why it's uh, James, son of Zebedee, you know, Saul of Tarsus. It would have been Yeshua, son of Joseph uh, and Miriam. And later on, it was Jesus of Nazareth. So you've got. Uh, in the New Testament, you've got Mary, mother of Jesus. You've got Mary Magdalene. You've got Mary, mother of James. Mary, mother of Joseph. Mary, wife of Clopas. You've got Lazarus' sister, right? Martha and Mary. So Mary of Bethany. You've got Mary, mother of Mark, and Mary of Rome. There's only one woman in the Old Testament named Mary, uh, Miriam. That's uh, Aaron and Moses' sister, the prophetess. But at the cross, Jesus sees his mother Mary, and he calls her woman. The same way he did at the wedding feast in Cana in John chapter 2. He said in John 2, 4, he said, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The implication being, this is not the time. I'll clear your name, but not here, not now. And that term woman is not at all derogatory. It's actually a, a term of endearment. 
So it's not woman. It's dear woman. So in John 19, 26, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. He takes care of his mother. And the, and the time is now. Her, her name will be cleared. Her reputation will be restored. He loves her. He loves his mom. And while he's dying on the cross, he's thinking of her. And let me just say this. May I submit to you, it's that way with us. You see, in Romans 5, 9, it says, before you knew him, he died for you, while you were still a sinner. In Jeremiah 1, 15, it says, he knew you before you were in the womb. In John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. God cares about you. He cares about the little things. He cares about the back surgery. It's, it's, at Sheridan House, it blows me away, the things that happen. It's the mom that called our single mom's ministry coordinator, Amy, a couple weeks ago, and she said, hey, and this is a mom who her husband committed suicide. They had a good marriage as far as she knew. Uh, they both are working, no signs of depression. And her son comes home, and dad had committed suicide. So she's got two kids and trying to deal with all that, you know. And uh, suddenly, you know, only one income in the family and struggling. And her 12-year-old son's bike was stolen. He, he rode his bike to school. He locks it up. But at home, he didn't lock it up. He just put it out at the front door. It was stolen. So she called, and, and she said, do you have a bike? And Amy said, well, we don't have a bike right now. And then the next day, I get this text from a guy named Robert Taylor. He goes, can you guys use a couple bikes and helmets? <laughs> yeah, we can. And, and this, this bike is a $1,000 bike. Mr. Taylor is an avid uh, biker. I mean, this kid is hooked up big time. And, and the single mom called us on Monday. And, and another side of the story is she, she called us on Monday, and she had ridden the bike to... Uh, work out at LA Fitness on Sunday and locked it up, went and worked out with her friend, came out, the lock was cut, bike was gone. She's freaking out. She tells her friend, let's get in the car, we're going to find it. And she goes, no, don't do that. She goes, no, I I have a feeling, we're going to find it. So she's driving around and she sees a guy, a very big guy, putting two bikes in his trunk and one of them is hers. So she gets out and goes crazy on this guy and he's like, slow down, I'm a law enforcement officer. Uh, I saw a guy with two bikes, <laughs> and he was, he was riding one, and he had the other one next to him. I thought it looked suspicious. I turned on my lights. He took off running. You can have your bike back. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh my God. Uh, we had another lady very recently, uh, about the same week, who called and asked for a, a dryer. Uh, my dryer broke. Do you guys have a dryer? <coughs> I pulled my phone out and showed Amy. I said, I, I just got this text. Can, can donate washer and dryer? Do you need them? That's amazing. God knows you, God loves you, and God has a plan for your life. And asking John to take care of his mother, it was super important because I think, as Bob said last week, in that culture, it's your responsibility. If you're the oldest son, you've got to take care of your mom. He won't neglect his mom. But she still has to come to faith like everyone else. And we see in Acts chapter 1, 
Mary, mother of Jesus, is praying in the upper room. And the last, that's the last we see about her in Scripture. But you can be sure of this. As long as Mary lived, John would take care of her. She would be in his house. Jesus actually made seven recorded statements on the cross. He said in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He thought of others. He's, he's, he's praying for the people that crucified him. He spoke to the believing thief, same chapter of, of Luke, Luke chapter 23. The, the thief said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He spoke to his mother. We just talked about that. He spoke about his relationship with the father. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Matthew 27? So he, he spoke to, about others. He spoke to others. He spoke to the thief. He spoke to his mother. He spoke about his relationship with his father. And the last three times, he, sp- he spoke of himself. Again, in Luke 23, it said, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And then our scripture for today, John 19, 28 through 30, he speaks of his soul, and he says he's thirsty. Our scripture for this morning, pick it up with me in verse 28. It reads, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He makes an interesting statement when he says, I'm thirsty. Obviously, there are physical reasons. He suffered trauma, blood loss, probably in shock. Just as predicted in Psalm 22:15, it says, My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. He was enduring real physical suffering. He had a real human body. But in addition to the physical needs for water, he felt the wrath of God. He felt the separation from God. He said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So, there's also a spiritual reason for the thirst. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 reads, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? John is very, very careful to let us know scriptures being fulfilled. There are entire chapters in the Old Testament that describe the crucifixion. You've got Psalm 22, You've got Isaiah 53, describes it in great detail. You've got uh, Genesis 22, uh, the sacrifice of Isaac. You've got Leviticus 16. The statistical chance of Jesus fulfilling just eight messianic prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. In other words, 1 in a quadrillion. To comprehend, or as an illustration... If you took a silver, silver dollars, if you took a hundred quadrillion silver dollars, you could cover the state of Texas two feet deep. And if you marked one and dropped it from a plane and stirred it up and blindfolded a guy and had him walk anywhere on the state of Texas and pull that one coin out, that's the statistical prophecy 
of one man fulfilling just eight messianic prophecies at the right time because Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 gives the exact date Jesus will appear. It was Palm Sunday. So a guy named Peter Stoner, Stoner calculated the chance of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies. The chance of getting struck by lightning is pretty remote, right? It's one in 700,000. It kind of looks like Trump, actually. <laughs> chance of being president, one in 10 million. Overall, Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies, and 28 of them were while he was hanging on the cross. And we've all seen the de depictions of Jesus hanging on the cross, where he's up really, really high. Not so much. First of all, very impractical and not necessary to do that. And you can think about it, if you've got that pole in the ground, there's about half that much pole has to be buried for it to stay up there. But what it would take to physically pull somebody up on something that high, a man weighing 180 pounds or more, very, very difficult, <coughs> almost impossible to do. But scripture says the soldiers took pity on Jesus and moistened his lips with cheap vinegar wine that the soldiers drank. Now, the average height of a Roman soldier was 166 centimeters, 5 feet 4. How do we know that? Well, the remains of people in Pompeii and Herculaneum and the three other cities that got buried by Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD about the time of Christ. 5 feet 4, not that big. And it says a soldier put a sponge at the end of a hyssop branch. Well, a hyssop is not a tree. It's a plant. It's an herb. And, and the branches are really willowy. And the longest one is 36 to 48 inches. So you got a guy, I'm 5 feet 10. Well, I, actually, apparently at the age of 55, you start shrinking. Because <laughs> I went to the doctor a couple weeks ago, and I'm like 5, 9, and 3 quarters all of a sudden. But if I'm 5, 4, and this is a wedge, which is about 35 and a half inches, so about this long, and I'm 5, 4, he's not that high off the ground. He's really not. Why a hyssop reed? Well, nothing happens by accident. It's used in the Passover celebration. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Back to verse 28. It says, Jesus knew everything was now finished, and to fulfill scriptures, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, those of us that live in the West, in the United States, we know very little about thirst. I mean, we may have experienced momentary, unless you're in the military, you probably haven't known what real thirst is. I mean, we probably all use the phrase, I'm dying of thirst, but no, we're not. But water at that time was supreme. Herdsmen fought over wells. Uh, Travelers and settlers made their, their plans based on the location of water. Today, if you have an electric vehicle, you're plotting where the charging stations are. Or if you're going on a long trip with your family, you're going to decide in advance where you're going to lodge for the night if you're traveling across country. Back then, it was all about water. You needed water for yourself. You needed water for your animals. <clears throat> Thirst wasn't a momentary discomfort. It was number one priority quest for every single day. He said, I'm thirsty. And it's a paradox. Because you've got Jesus, the water of life, dying of thirst. He said, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. John 7, 38. 
He said, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst again, John 4.14. The first thing that comes to mind when we hear Jesus say, I'm thirsty, is his humanity. We forget about the humanity of Jesus. He felt the pain. Right down to the physical pain of thirst. And in Luke chapter 2, Mary wrapped him in swaddling as a baby to keep him warm. In John 4, 6, it says he was tired of the long walk and he was weary. He said Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Matthew 4, 2, for 40 days and 40 nights he ate nothing and he became hunger, hungry. He felt hunger. Mark 4.38, in the boat, the disciples were hysterical. He's asleep, and they're like, wake up. We're gonna, don't you care? We're going to wreck. He slept. Number one on your outline. We can't understand the God-man balance of Jesus. We can't understand it. But we must acknowledge his humanity and his suffering for our sake. He said, I'm thirsty. This passage reminds us, not just of Christ's suffering, but of suffering in general. Suffering on planet Earth for now is a reality. People have tried to deny it. There's some religions like Christian science and some Eastern religions that try to deny it. There's People have tried not to acknowledge it. Just don't think about it. It'll go away. People have tried to medicate and party so they don't have to deal with it. Hedonism. Number two on your outline. We live in a fallen world. No amount of denial, effort, or medicating will remove the evil that brings on suffering. That is precisely why Jesus came and suffered. His death on that cross defeated the ultimate suffering of eternity in hell for those who receive him as Lord. In this passage, we see his humanity and the reality of suffering. The third thing we see is it says... To fulfill the scriptures, he said, I'm thirsty. I thirst in John 19.28 is a fulfillment of Psalm 69.21. So they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Number three on your outline. When Jesus cried out, I thirst, he was doing exactly what had been written about this moment hundreds of years earlier. Jesus knew that everything was now finished, and to fulfill scriptures, he said, I'm thirsty. One thing we can't be sure of is the central point of his thirst. His lips were parched, yes, but could it be deeper? I think both. It's both physical and spiritual. And there's more for us, because at his greatest point of pain, everything that he said prior is on the line. He's teaching us, perhaps even teaching us about teaching others, Number four in your outline, we teach our greatest lessons at our greatest points of pain. It doesn't mean don't feel the pain. It doesn't mean don't give in to the pain. It means don't let the pain become your focus. Could it be that Jesus is teaching us about real thirst? Matthew twenty-seven forty-five reads, at noon, which was for them the 6 o'clock hour, their day starts at sunrise. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. 
At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Number five on your outline. Could it be that Jesus was thirsting for the return of his unobstructed, perfectly flowing oneness with the Father? Absolutely. It was spiritual and physical, the thirst. Psalms 42.1 says, As a deer pants for flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Number six on your outline. Jesus took, away my, Jesus took my sins away from me and carried them upon himself on the cross that day. Letter A. While he carried our sins on that cross, he was separated from the Father. Letter B. He thirsted for that relationship he had always had since before the beginning of time. He thirsted for that relationship he had always had since the beginning of time. Our sins separated them. Not his sins. My sins. John 4, 7 reads, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who I am, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Jesus replied, People soon become thirsty again after drinking this water, but the water I give takes away thirst altogether. It becomes a perpetual spring within them, giving them eternal life. Number seven on your outline. Once you've enjoyed the living water, nothing else will ever satisfy. Number eight on your outline. What is your greatest thirst? Ask yourself this question. What is the all-consuming thirst of my thoughts? What consumes your thoughts? Psalm 42.2 says, I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come stand before him? Number nine on your outline. Doing religion is like dreaming about the real thing. Isaiah 29.8 reads, A hungry person dreams of eating but is still hungry. A thirsty person dreams of drinking but is still faint from thirst when morning comes. In the same way, your enemies will dream of a, of a victorious conquest over Jerusalem, but all to no avail. <coughs> Number 10 on your outline. Your thirst is a powerful motivator. Do you ever find yourself never satisfied? Do you find yourself constantly thirsty for things? John 6.35 says, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. Those who believe in me will never thirst. John 19.30 reads, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The Greek in the text is tetelestai. It means it is finished. It stands finished. It will always be finished. It's an unfamiliar word to us, but at that time it was a common phrase. People used it all the time. If you were a servant and you completed a task for your master, you would say tetelestai. Jesus used it in his prayer in John 17, 4. In the upper room, he said, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do, tetelestai. When an artist completed a picture or the writer of a manuscript, he or she would write, would, would say, tetelestai, when it's finished, meaning nothing can be added. It is finished. Because of the cross, we can understand the Old Testament ceremonies and the sacrifices and the prophecies. They recovered a papaya receipt with the word tetelestai written across it, meaning paid in full. A merchant at that time, probably the most meaningful use of tetelestai, would write the debt is paid in full across the bottom of a receipt. He'd write tetelestai. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid our debt in full. His redemptive work was complete. It says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, he'd been made sin for people. You see, none of the Old Testament sacrifices could take away sin. They could only cover sin. But the blood shed by the Lamb of God takes away sins. It's a profound difference. It's very deep. John 1.29 reads, The next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Understand, it's a one-time final event. Hebrews 9.24-28 reads, for Christ did not enter into the holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. And he did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again, like the high priest here on earth who enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of an animal. If that had been necessary, Christ would have had to die again and again, ever since the world began. But now, once for all time... He has appeared at the, at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. He will come again not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who eagerly wait for him. In Acts it was the Philippian jailer who went to Paul and Silas and said, what must I do, sirs, to be saved? The answer is you can't do anything. You can't do anything. It's too late. It's already been done. To tell us that, it is finished. At the moment of his death was the moment of our salvation, Romans, 9, Romans 6, 3. Every other religion and cult teaches us what we must do. Christianity is based on what he's already done, not what needs to be done. We can't do anything to get right with God except to realize it's all been done. That's the moment that the scales fall from our eyes. I came to Christ later in life. I was 30 years old, and prior to that point, I'd seen Bibles before. People had witnessed to me before. The Bible made no sense to me. It was dull. It was boring. And when I came to the Lord, the scales fell from my, life, my eyes, and it just came alive for me. It's amazing. You've probably heard the expression, I'm going to get to the crux of the matter. It's a Latin word, crux. 
The matter that matters most is at the foot of the cross. The Latin word crux means cross. The expression, I'm going to get to the crux of the matter, really means I'm going to get to the cross of the matter. Paul said to the Corinthians, in, in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he said, For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ crucified. The matter that matters most is at the foot of the cross. All you can do, all you have to do, is believe. So, the jailer said to, to Paul and Silas, what must I do to get saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, just like the thief on the cross. Amen? Amen.